Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. We're glad that you're joining us today. Um, I'm going to begin uh, on the episode today uh, since we're so close to this special observance of Jesus' birth and coming into the world. I thought I would do a couple of uh, lessons on the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, for these next few weeks leading up to Christmas. I think all of us uh, uh, can agree that Christmas is, if not our favorite, is one of the most special uh, holidays, uh, special occasions that we observe in our calendar every year. And for us as Christians, of course, the coming of Christ into the world uh, aside from what he did when he came, has got to be the greatest thing that's ever happened uh, to the world and to us individually. And so uh, I've always loved Christmas long before I was even a Christian. Uh, I remember being brought up where Christmas was the most special holiday of the year. And uh, and I just love this time of year. It's magical. It's It's so precious. And I thought I would bring a couple of lessons on the Christmas story. And what better place to do that than to go right to the Scriptures? And so I've decided that in these next couple of broadcasts leading up to Christmas, I would uh, go through the story of Jesus' birth as found in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, you know, uh, knowing your Bible well enough, that only two of the four Gospels record the birth of Christ, with any detail at least. Uh, that is Matthew and Luke. But for sake of time, since I only have a couple of weeks to Christmas, I'll just go through Matthew as far as I can, uh, verse by verse, through these first few chapters in Matthew's gospel, and maybe next Christmas, uh, if we're still all together and the Lord allows, I may go into Luke's gospel, which is a blessing as well. Now, before jumping into Matthew, let me give a little bit of history uh, kind of like I would if I was teaching the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse by verse. I'd want to give some introduction to the book itself. And as it goes for the birth of Christ, I think it's important that we know some of the history of what was happening uh, in the world at that time. The Bible is, is a, a self-contained document that focuses on God's plan for all of mankind and all of history, but particularly with emphasis on His chosen people Israel and how Christ was sent to the Jews and to live uh, among them. He was born a Jew. He came from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, as we know. But world events are important to remember. If you know your Old Testament well, you know the Old Testament closes around 400 B.C., give or take a few decades. But let's just for sake of numbers say that the Old Testament ended in around 400 B.C. with the last books of of Malachi. We had the the uh, post-exile books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So when it closes in 400 BC, basically there's 400 years without scripture being given to God's people in any way. That's why the 400 years, those four centuries, are often called by biblical scholars and, and theologians the, the silent years or otherwise known as the intertestamental period, the period between the two testaments, between the old and the new. Now, it doesn't mean that God went to sleep. He never sleeps. It doesn't mean that things weren't still happening. It just means God was not giving inspired revelation in Scripture. He closed the Old Testament with the 39 books that we know in our English Bible, and he did not speak again to the opening events of the New Testament. 
we could say that during that 400 years, some important things were happening. As the Old Testament closed, we know the Medo-Persian Empire uh, was still uh, in power over the world. That's the same empire that uh, we see in the books of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and from Zechariah and Malachi, uh, Haggai as well. Uh, All of those uh, last books chronologically of the Old Testament happened at the Medo-Persian Empire, but then uh, into the 4th century B.C., uh, right around 333 in that area, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire took over the world, and uh, it was a very powerful empire and lasted for a couple hundred years until it splintered after uh, his death uh, and was uh, divided up by four of his sons, uh, Alexander the Great's sons, And one important event that did happen during this intertestamental period uh, is famous for what we now know as the celebration of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, kept by the Jewish people even today, was a celebration of a miraculous uh, supposed event uh, that happened around 167 B.C., where uh, the Maccabees, led by Jacob Maccabee and his brothers, uh, revolted against uh, the Syrian uh, empire that was really a kind of a branch off of the Greek empire that was dominating and oppressing uh, the Jewish people in Israel. And basically, th- to give you the short version of the story, uh, they took back the holy place in Jerusalem, the temple that had been built uh, by Zerubbabel years before in 516 it was completed, And basically, the miracle of Hanukkah was supposedly that they had just enough oil to light the holy menorah, the candlestick, the golden candlestick in the temple. Uh, And it was only supposed to last for a day. But remember, it took seven days to consecrate new oil to be put in the menorah. And supposedly, God kept the um, oil burning for a whole seven days. And thus, the Hanukkah celebration each time of the year, uh, just before Christmas, uh, Jewish people uh, observe Hanukkah just about this time of the year every year. Now, uh, we can say one thing positive about the uh, festival of Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication it is even recognized by Jesus in the New Testament, at least that he, uh, it was recognized by the writer John in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 22, uh, in the story of Jesus' life in his Gospel. He says, and it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. So some uh, 200 years after the actual event, Uh, Jesus actually was in the temple in the Feast of Dedication, known now as Hanukkah, popularly. Uh, It was kept back then. Well, let's go fast forward now. We get to the, uh, basically, the first century uh, A.D., uh, first century B.C., where we get the changeover from B.C. to A.D., before Christ and in the year of our Lord, Anto Domini, Anno Domini. Um, we know that the story actually opens up with Luke, and Luke's gospel actually gives us the initial uh, appearance of the angel Gabriel to this man Zacharias in the temple, and that's the first chapter of Luke. But I'm not going to uh, deal with Luke's gospel. I'll try to cover it maybe next Christmas or at some other point. 
But instead, I decided, since it is first in the canon order of the books of the New Testament, that I'd go ahead and go through Matthew uh, in the first few chapters, Matthew 1 and 2, which record in Matthew's presentation the birth of Christ. Now, let me say, again, this is all preliminary introduction, but each of the four gospel writers we know wrote their gospels to a particular target audience with a particular purpose and theme in mind. And it is important to keep those in mind, to know them when you're studying each of the Gospels. And for the purpose of Matthew, we could say that it was written to the Jewish reader. It was written to the Jews. And it's written to present Jesus as the King of the Jews. His royalty, his majesty is stressed. Of course, because it's written to the Jews, there's more Old Testament quotations and fulfillments uh, that are mentioned in Matthew than any of the other three Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John. And with that in mind, as you're studying the Gospel of Matthew, and you open up your New Testament, you can imagine a person opening up the New Testament for the first time, um, it's very Jewish-sounding. Uh, uh, we used to have, my wife and I, when we were first married, we've been married 36-plus years, we rented a house from a, a Jewish couple here in the DFW area, and we reached out to them and, in fact, bought uh, them a, a Hebrew copy of the New Testament. We wanted to at least introduce them to uh, the life of Christ and the gospel as fulfilled in the New Testament and the work of Christ. So I remember giving it to this couple. The husband wasn't very spiritual at all. He was more agnostic. Uh, but the uh, the wife had been brought up in a in a rabbi's home. Her father had was actually a rabbi. And I remember after giving her this Hebrew New Testament, as they were already uh, aware of the Old Testament in their original language and had heard it, of course, and, and knew it, uh, I remember going back to her the first time after giving it to her for a while and asking her, what did you think about what you read? And what she said was was really important. She said to me, it sounded very Jewish. <laughs> That's what she told me. It sounded very Jewish. Well, I can see why, because as she would have opened up that New Testament, say for the first time she had maybe ever read it, uh, even in Hebrew, of course, she would be reading Matthew 1. And she would start with a genealogy. So as you open up the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 to see Matthew the writer who writes to the Jewish uh, reader, that's his primary target audience. Now, he wrote it for all of us, and all the scripture is profitable, we know, from 2 Timothy 3. But uh, it does help us to understand how these books were written to certain people or, or groups for a certain purpose, and we can get better uh, insight into what they were writing and what we were what God wants us to take from it. Of course, this is by the inspiration of the Spirit. When we say Matthew was the writer, he's the human writer. He's the secretary, if you will, that God chose to write down by the inspiration of the Spirit exactly what he wanted to write. So let's jump into the Gospel of Matthew, and it'll lead us into the Christmas story, of course. Um, and let me begin by looking at verse 1. I'm reading from the King James Version that we use here at our church. If you're using another modern version, it's going to sound, I think, very similar. There may be some changes, and I hope you'll take note of those if there is. But um, the King James Version starts in verse 1 by saying this, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I said we're going to launch right into a genealogy 
to begin the New Testament. That might sound very strange because genealogies have typically not been the most popular thing in the Bible, and most people, and I've even been guilty at times in my Christian life of 37 plus years, um, maybe skipping over or just breezing over the genealogies, these ancestral records of people, thinking that maybe they're it's not that important. The names are too hard or places that might be found there, and we can't pronounce them anyway. And instead of butchering them and struggling through them, we've kind of skipped over it. But we would be greatly mistaken to do that anywhere in the Bible, and especially here, as the whole New Testament starts with the genealogy. And notice how it starts with these two words, the book. <laughs> that always took me back years ago when I started to read the Bible for the first time seriously. The book. God has given us his book. The New Testament starts by declaring itself a book because the Old Testament is not complete without the New Testament. God intended for the Old Testament to be fulfilled with the New. And that's why the New Testament book had to be written to add to the Old Testament to complete the entire revelation of God. The book uh, God uh, is a God of words. He's revealed himself by the written page, first by the writers in the Old Testament, uh, and then the writers of the New, bringing it together to form one complete, holy inspired document, 66 books that make up the Bible or the books. And so I love how this starts the book. But now it's going to launch right into the family that Christ came from. Now, this is so important. When we talk about the Christmas story, what we're really talking about is the incarnation. That word's been given to denote God becoming a man, God dwelling in human flesh. That's the most important miracle, the most important event that's ever happened. Literally, it changed the world. Uh, our calendars changed by the coming of Christ, went from B.C. to A.D., but more importantly, he came to change each of us individually. And so when Jesus came, he was born into the world as a man. He had to become a man that he might be the mediator between God and man to save us from our sins. He could represent God because he was divine. He is God in the flesh. But he could represent man at the cross because he became a man, yet always remained without sin. And so when we start into this very human-sounding genealogy, in Matthew 1, it's important that we remember why Matthew starts this way. See, to a Jewish person, your ancestry was important. Remember, the Jews started with Abraham. He was the father of the Jewish people. But through his line with Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob had the 12 sons. We know our Old Testament well enough to remember all this, I hope. And his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And from those 12 tribes... Uh, we know many, many great events happened and so forth, but God, in his will and his sovereignty, which means his control over all things and his providence, he knew he had to send his son by way of the Jewish people because that's why he founded them. That's why he separated Abraham to start a new people from which he could bless the world and come into the world to save men from their sins well, out of those 12 tribes, one tribe would have to be the tribe that Christ would come from. And so he came from the tribe of Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. Now, remember, no matter when Jesus was coming to the world, he had to, to come from some people group, 
okay? If he was going to be a man and come into the world by way of the same process that we do by, by birth, he had to do it as a person. And so God chose the Jewish people, and particularly the tribe of Judah. And then even more particularly, we funnel it down to the family of David. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, it first gives us the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, we know David in his uh, special story in the Old Testament, uh, he becomes the great king of Israel, chosen by God. Yes, his story is blighted by the terrible events with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, but, but David was still a very important man, mainly because God made a promise. It's called the Davidic covenant, the agreement that God made, the promise that God made to David, that from his line, from his ancestor, his generations after him, would the Messiah be born. And that's why when Matthew writes to the Jews, he immediately tells us that Jesus Christ is of the generation of David, and even further back, the generation of Abraham, Jesus was a Jew. And he especially was from the royal line of David. Remember, after David came Solomon. And those firstborn sons were supposed to be the next kings. That's how the monarchies work. Now, there's times when, it, when it's altered because of sin and, and, and so forth. But the plan was that through the bloodline of David, the Messiah would eventually come. And the rest of this genealogy, all the way down through verse 17, uh, is going to give us that genealogy, that ancestral record uh, of Jesus Christ from the line of David. Now, uh, as we go on, uh, let's, let's begin to read this genealogy, and I'll read it for you. And as I said, uh, some of these names are hard, and I'm not going to promise that I'm going to pronounce every one of them perfectly accurate. You may have a different pronunciation. You may have a pastor or, or someone you listen to on, uh, online or on the radio or TV, whatever, that pronounces differently, but we'll get the gist of it. And this genealogy is important. Remember, it's going to prove that Jesus is not only Jewish, but that he is legitimately in the line of the royal crown of, of David. Now, I should say, I should have said this already, but why is that important? Because when God made the promise that he made to David that the Messiah was going to come from his line, that promise also included royalty. As God said, one from your line, David, will rule over the house of Israel. And I could even go further and say, if you go into the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that the Messiah was to rule over the earth in what we've called people in eschatology or the study of end times doctrine called the millennial kingdom. We believe the Old Testament teaches that Messiah would come one day and rule over not only the Jews in a special dispensation for them, but also rule over the world in a very utopian type uh, society where God's blessing would be so evident as Jesus Christ the Messiah would reign and will reign. And that's all future tense, we know. But that's why this is important. The reason Matthew goes into great detail of giving us all these generations from Abraham to Christ is he wants to prove to his Jewish reader that Jesus is legitimately the Messiah and the royal son of David, the king promised to one day rule over the earth. And that is very important. Now, let's start into the genealogy. Some of these names in the first uh, five or six verses, at least seven verses, are going to be pretty well known. 
Now, let me give you one other little disclaimer. I have to throw this out. As they're translated from Greek into English instead of Hebrew into English, like in the Old Testament, the lettering changes a little bit. I know that's confused people, at least in the King James it does this. I can't speak for all the modern versions out there, but in the King James you'll see a little bit of change in some of the pronunciation, or I should say spellings, that may cause you to think the pronunciation is different. I'm going to just stick with the Old Testament pronunciation so we won't get confused. It's the same people. It may be spelled a little different, but you could figure it out, okay? Um so let me start in verse 2. So remember, it started with Abraham, so we got to start with him in the genealogy. Abraham begat. Begat is a word used in all the genealogies in the Old Testament too. Uh, well, most of them at least. To It just simply says it from a man's loins. Uh, from, this is his descendants. Uh, as he produces children through his wife, these are his descendants. So the word begat means to be brought forth from a father. And so here, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, or Judah, and his brethren. I've already talked about them. Notice how we're funneling down now already. Started with Abraham, the father of the whole Jewish uh, people, but now we've come through Judah in verse 2. Then it says, And Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Well, that's the story back in Genesis 38. I don't have time to stop and rehearse all these stories, but I'm wanting you to see this line. Now, Tamar is going to be the first of four women that are part of this genealogy to Christ. And I think what's really fascinating, uh, well, several things. Number one, it shows that the Bible is not anti-woman. It's not chauvinistic. That is a lie that has been labeled on the Christian faith and on the Bible that is incorrect and needs to be forever put to rest. God is not anti-woman. God created woman and brought her to the man. God has blessed womanhood. Jesus elevated womanhood. True biblical Christianity has always seen equality of man and woman. And the Bible teaches that. In Galatians 3, it says there's neither man nor male nor female, bond or free. All are one in Jesus Christ. And so in this genealogy, we have four women. That's very unusual, by the way. In, in ancient Jewish genealogies, of course, and even in up to modern times in some cultures, a woman was never mentioned in a genealogy. It was only the men. The male leadership, it was more of a patriarchal society in most societies in the past. And so what we have here is unusual, four women. But furthermore, out of these four women that are mentioned, there's, there's something... Um, kind of that slights each of their characters, um, whether from their own sin or something that about their past. And we remember Tamar ends up, it's a very illicit graphic story, just to give you just a quick detail, that she actually ends up having these twins, these twin boys from her father-in-law, Judah. It's found in Genesis 38. You can read it. Uh, but only one of those twins will continue the line. It has to just be one man continuing the line to Messiah. So that's Perez. It's pronounced Perez here in, in verse 3. And he begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab. Now, we don't know these people as well once we get past the story of Perez being born from Tamar, but they're continuing the line. You'll see some other names brought up here in a minute. And Abinadab begat Nason. And Nason begat Salmon. 
Now, Salmon uh, is going to be brought up in the next verse, and we're going to see our second woman mentioned. Here it says in verse 5, And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Wow, that's important. First of all, Salmon ends up marrying Rahab. Here's our second woman. From Joshua chapter 2, there was a Canaanite woman uh, from Jericho by the name of Rahab. She was a Gentile, okay? And she was once a harlot. She was called Rahab the harlot. But when she got to hear about Israel and came to know the God of Israel. And remember when they came in and they surrounded her city seven times and, uh, and, and the walls of Jericho fell, she was delivered because she had faith. <coughs> Excuse me. She had faith in the God of Israel. And she had made a promise with the two spies to spare her life and anyone in her house. And here she is in the genealogy of Christ because she married a man named Salmon. She not only came to believe in the God of Israel, but she basically married into the Jewish people. She was kind of like what we might call a proselyte, one who comes to faith from another faith and changes their faith or their belief system to unite with another belief system. And that's what she did here. So Rahab marries Solomon, but they have a son who's very important. His name is Boaz. And the next statement in verse 5 leads into how important he is. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Well, we know the little book of Ruth, a little love story, the great little book based on the kinsman-redeemer relationship where Boaz uh, marries Ruth after her husband uh, had died. And uh, the husband's uh, father, Elimelech, was going to lose all his property and inheritance in Israel. They lived in Bethlehem. You know that little precious story in uh, the book of Ruth right after the judges before 1 Samuel. It's a beautiful little book. But it says there's this child born from Boaz and Ruth. Now, here's thir our third woman, Ruth. I told you each of the women has something about them that's, that, that, that kind of casts some slight on them. What well, we could say about Ruth, only this, she was a Moabite. She was from Moab, one of the perennial longtime enemies of Israel, and uh, came from the very sordid, illicit story of Lot uh, and having two sons by his own daughters, Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And Ruth, as a Moabite, comes to faith in the God of Israel. And even after her husband dies, when they were living in the land of Moab, she comes back to Israel with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and ends up through the kinsman-redeemer principle of the Old Testament, marrying Boaz and having this son, Obed. Well, there he is in the genealogy. Now, notice next, verse 5, And Obed, he grows up and has his firstborn son, uh, begat Jesse. Now, if you don't know Jesse, you'll know him in the next verse. And Jesse begat David the king. Oh, David. Remember the great story in 1 Samuel 16, where Jesse had eight sons, and the, the prophet Samuel was sent by God to anoint a new king because the king Saul that the people of Israel chose was not a man after God's own heart. He, he was a worldly carnal man. And God said, I won't bless him. I'm going to remove him from being king. And I want to use David. And we remember Samuel goes and anoints young David, the youngest of eight sons of Jesse living in Bethlehem. Well, then it goes on. The genealogist goes past all these stories just to give you the names and who they were. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Now, here's our fourth woman in the genealogy. She's not even named, but we know who she is. And here's the negative. Here's the 
the disclaimer to her life and what happened. We know what happened. Her name was Bathsheba. And David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And we know the story. It's in 2 Samuel where he has her husband Uriah killed on purpose. And uh, there's a child born uh, from their adulterous relationship, but the child dies at seven days old. But yet David does take Bathsheba to be his wife, and they have this son Solomon right after that. Solomon becomes the next in line to continue the line to Christ. So four women, all in the genealogy, all have a part in bringing Jesus physically into the world. Now, let me say before moving on, that might sound strange. Hey, these are four women that all have some kind of a sinful or uh, principle in their life that would exclude them, you would think. But no, no, Jesus had to come into the world as a man. Now, he's going to be virgin born. We'll see that. We know that. But the genealogy is not going to contain all perfect people. There are no perfect people besides him. So all the genealogy is full of sinners. It's just because it brings four women up who have sinful things in their past, or at least things that we could look down upon from their past, like Ruth being a Moabite. Hey, still, all the men in this genealogy are sinners too, so it shouldn't surprise us. Christ came to save sinners. He came from sinners, but he himself was without sin. Well, let me continue the genealogy further. Verse 7 and Solomon begat Rehoboam. Now, the pronunciation is Roboam, but it's Rehoboam. Rehoboam begat Abiah or Abijah, and Abijah begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. Uh, now, many of these names, again, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see they're pronounced a little differently. These are a list of the kings. If we had time, it's not our purpose here to do it, but we could go back and look in 1 Kings, especially as you get into 2 Kings 2. You'll see all these names. These are the royal dynasty of David, of the kings of Judah. Remember the Old Testament? It shows that northern Israel broke off from southern Judah after uh, the death of Solomon, and the kings of the north have their uh, line that you can see, and it's, it's all sorted, and all those northern kings of north, northern Israel were evil men. But in the south, that genealogy is through David, and at least five of the 20 kings, there's about 20 kings in Judah after David, five of them were good men, at least said, as the text says, they did right in the eyes of the Lord. But that's what I'm reading here, really. As I'm reading now from verse 7 to verse 9, I'll pick up in verse 10, you could compare these names to the kings in Judah as found in Second Kings. Right now it's in chapter 15, but it goes on. So it says, And Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekiel begat Manasseh. Ezekiel would be Hezekiah, just pronounced different here. Manasseh, we know. Manasseh begat Ammon. And Ammon begat Josias or Josiah. And then it does something very important in verse 11. It says, And Josias begat Jeconias, or that's Josiah and Jeconiah, and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Isn't that important? So right here, he stops kind of the genealogy names. And just to tell us about an important historical event, this happened actually in 586 B.C. We know the date because this is an historical record that the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar came in and first sieged the city around for about a year and a half, almost two years, and then ransacked the city when, the wall, uh, when they breached the walls, burned down the temple, 
killed many of the Jews, took many into captivity, among whom were Daniel and Ezekiel and many other Jewish people. Uh, but he, inter- he interjects that in the text here so we can keep some historical chronology here. We know that Abraham lived around 2000 BC. That's pretty much standard dating for his life. So now we're at 536. We, we've transpired already uh, 1,500 years almost, okay, or 1,400 years in the chronology of the genealogy. Now, now we've got to get from the Babylonian captivity in verse 11 to the birth of Christ. So that's going to cover, again, about almost 600 years or so. So let me begin now back in verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Sealtiel. And Sealtiel begat Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is found in the story of Ezra. He led a group back to rebuild the temple in 536. They completed the temple in 516. It would become known as Zerubbabel's temple. It was the second temple, much smaller, less significant than the beautiful temple of Solomon that was destroyed in 586. But nonetheless, he's there. You can see this is all royal the royal dynasty. Now, none of these men are reigning as kings anymore. you got to remember, once the Babylonians destroyed the city and removed the king, the last king was named Zedekiah, uh, there was going to be no royal kings, but still Matthew wants to prove that Jesus is coming from the royal line. So he's still going to give you the names of, of the genealogy. And Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azer, and Azer begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud, and Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Matham, uh, Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph. Now, look how we went. We, we covered about 575 years or thereabouts uh, to get to Joseph. Now, let me interject something because you need to know this. There'll be some skeptics who will tell you that, hey, uh, uh, if you take the 42 generations, there's going to be a total of 42 generations here. They're going to tell you, hey, if we go 2,000 years, that doesn't seem like uh, 42 generations is enough time to cover that. If you give the generations, uh, what, 40 years apiece, 50 years it would be, but some argue that maybe a generation was much quicker than 40 or 50 years, say it was 25 years. What I'm saying is we can't be certain, and it doesn't, it's not important anyway, that every name in the genealogy is here. Sometimes uh, somebody will be skipped in a genealogy. We see that in the Old Testament. Maybe they did something uh, that God didn't want them to be remembered. There's many reasons for this. They would maybe sometimes genealogists give you the main people in a line, a family line. So uh, don't let people trip you up on that. Back to the genealogy now. Look at how it it ends really in verse 15 and then gets us to Joseph. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You notice that little uh, change there, an important change. It's been, it's been saying so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, man to man to man. Well, we know Jesus was not the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. And so when it gets to verse 16, it has to change that. It says, and Jacob begat Joseph. That's true. That was Joseph's dad's name's Jacob. The husband of Mary. Now we bring Mary into it because Mary is going to be the one God uses to bring her son physically into the world, not Joseph at all. He had no physical part in his birth, 
Although, let me just say, I think Joseph's an important man, and you're going to see the beauty of his part in the story as we continue uh, next week. But anyway, it enters in and says she's the husband, I'm sorry, he's the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Remember, all these gospel accounts, including this one by Matthew, were written about 30, 35 years after uh, the life of Christ. So that would put uh, the writing of Matthew sometime around 55 to 60 or in that area. So the actual birth of Christ was 60 years before this or thereabouts. And so uh, when Matthew writes here, he's telling you what he's called now, who is called Christ. Uh, when he was first born, only his his mother Mary and Joseph and a few of the shepherds and a few people knew he was really the Christ. But by the time Joseph, or uh, I'm sorry, Matthew writes this account, uh, his name is spread abroad to many places, and churches have been founded, and Christianity has had an influence on on the Roman world by then. So he says he's called Christ. Now let's finish with verse 17 for today. He says, "So all the generations from Abraham to David." are 14 generations. Remember, that doesn't mean there wasn't somebody else in there that could have been left out. He's going to give you these numbers, 3 times 14 to be 42, okay, to keep this in perfect line and kind of symmetric and order. He says, so all the generation from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, I'm not 100% sure. I've never been totally comfortable with any interpretation on why the 42 generations are important, other than to tell you that the Jews were very meticulous in how they kept their ancestral records. And so 42 generations and 14 in each of these three parts uh, would be perfectly in order to how organized, they would keep their family ancestries. And so uh, from Abraham to David, David to Babylon, Babylon or the captivity in Babylon to Christ, 42 generations. Now, I close by saying again how important this genealogy is, not only to a Jewish reader, it would be to them for sure, but to you and I. Remember, Jesus was fully God, but he's also fully man. He had to come into the world as a man, that he could be our Savior and represent us. Just like we were represented in Adam. We all came from Adam. Well, Jesus is called in Scripture the second Adam. We're represented in Christ because he became one of us. And that great verse in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament to teach us salvation, that Jesus had to bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful people, sinful man, you and I. And in order to do that, he had to represent perfectly both sides. He couldn't be leaning towards one and not perfectly represent the other. He had to bring us together. He's the bridge and the cross, that old great picture that we have here at our church in several rooms of of the cross being like the bridge to lead people into heaven and to be with God forever. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, Lord willing, we'll pick up on the actual story of the birth of Christ as given by Matthew next time. And I do want to wish you a wonderful, happy, and Merry Christmas with your family. And remember our motto that we end all our programs with, conviction for truth, conviction, uh, conviction for truth, and compassion for people. 
God bless you. We'll see you next time.